This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So, good evening to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study where we are wrestling with the last words of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is addressing his people as they are about to enter the land of Canaan and uh, ends up giving uh, you know, essentially the longest monologue in the entire Bible, despite at the beginning of his career uh, telling God that he doesn't know how to talk. So somewhere along the line, he's uh, learnt to do quite well. Now, we didn't have a Bible study last week because um, we were, we were uh, celebrating Purim. And um, if, you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen the Purim play, then um, it is online. So hopefully you will have an opportunity to go and join the fun. But what we'll do is we'll uh, begin with a word of prayer and uh, as we, we commit ourselves to God uh, around his word, can uh, a volunteer to pray, not just my voice. R.E.A., pray for us in. Go right, mate. Heavenly Father, we bless you tonight. And we thank Amen. you for the same yesterday, today, and we can count on you again tomorrow. We ask for your presence among us, Lord. We have responded to the move of your spirit through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray that you, Lord, would manifest yourself and make yourself known among us by speaking, by teaching, by admonishing, by encouraging, especially, Lord, in these difficult times. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, we were wrestling with... Um, the verses 9 to 31 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. And here is a summary of that. Now, unfortunately, I didn't print these out. Uh, my mistake. So I'll just read it from, from my uh, iPad. Right. The command to remember is the most common command in the Bible. God asks us to remember more times than any other command. In verse 9, Moses charges the people not to forget the things that they have seen with their eyes, but also not to forget from the heart. So Moses is continuing to draw focus to the intention of the heart, which is going to be a big theme that, uh, uh, in this book. It is central to his commentary to the Torah and a major theme of Deuteronomy. Write these laws on your heart you know, and make sure you you do not forget from your heart. One way to remember, as, as Moses' advice, is to teach the commandments to your children. Yet, this is something Moses himself fails to do. So he doesn't circumcise his kids and his kids uh, end up uh, going wayward. However, that doesn't mean that the commandment not to teach that to teach to our kids is, is invalid. It's a good thing, and we should strive to do so. One way to remember the commandments of God is to teach the commandments of God. Moses reminds the people of the day that they all stood at Horeb, the other name for Mount Sinai, where Israel and the multitude, it wasn't just Israel, God has always wanted Jews and Gentiles together, assembled to hear God speak. The word Shema in Hebrew means both hear and obey. Through the process of hearing and obeying the Lord, Israel will learn to revere God. Where Moses says you will learn to revere the Lord. Reverence is thus linked to obedience. 
Moses knows that the people of Israel have an unhealthy attraction to idolatry. Recall the golden calf. Thus, in verse 15, Moses declares that while God was speaking from the fire in the mountain, they themselves saw no form. He says that several times. You didn't see anything. There will be no opportunity to construct an image of God from fire. However, in Exodus 20, verse 18, it says that they actually saw or did see something. He says that they saw the voices, they saw the fires, and they saw the voice of the shofar. This produces an interesting midrash on fire, voices, multiple languages, and multiple nations present. And this midrash reappears in Acts chapter 2. In verse 20, the people are called an inheritance of God, which is an interesting concept. Right? Inheritance is not something earned. It is acquired through membership in a family. God calls the people his inheritance and he calls the land is an inheritance for the people. In verse 21 reveals uh, the humanity of Moses as he once again blames the people for his sin in angering the Lord. We all play the blame game, even the heroes of God. And one of the good things about the Bible is it doesn't try and uh, whitewash over uh, character flaws of heroes. Uh, they, they are just like us. We all play the blame game, even the heroes of God. Moses describes the land as a good land. Beauty is always in the eyes of the beholder. So who gets to choose the adjective to describe the land? What happens if you disagree? If the Almighty is calling the land good, would you disagree? Now that uh, at this, these are now at the time of the last words of Moses, the good land is actually full of evil people. In verse 23, again highlights idolatry. Now in relation to the covenant, idolatry will lead the people to forget the covenant made with God, and this will bring about consequences, disastrous ones. From verse 25, Moses prophesies that in Israel's success, they will fail. A successful conquest will result in the ultimate betrayal of Israel through idolatry and a scattering among the Gentiles. So, this creates an interesting paradox. If success is actually bad, why pray for success? Why ask for wealth if it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? If entering the land of Canaan would lead to idolatry, why not remain in the wilderness? It's a paradox. Heaven and earth are brought in as witnesses to the covenant. In Jewish tradition, creation is alive, and as Paul reminds us, groaning for its redemption. Moses does not leave the Israelites abandoned to their idolatrous fate in diaspora. Repentance is always available. One of the best verses in the Bible is chapter 4, verse 29. If you seek the Lord your God with all your heart, you will find him. There's that heart issue again. While God has previously been described as, a je as jealous, he is also merciful. And as a covenant keeper, the Almighty One, blessed be he, will always be faithful to his promises to the patriarchs. Paul reflects this truth in Romans 11.28 when he declares to the Gentiles in Rome that the Jewish Israel remains loved because of the patriarchs. So those were the things we discussed uh, last two weeks ago and now we pick it up at verse 32 so all right
Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. <laughs> Not good? Oh, you're reading King James. Okay. So it's very difficult. We shall see how we go. I'll start um, at verse 32. We'll just go around our little text. Unless I'm doing something wrong. Chapter 4. Oh, chapter 4.32. Oh, Go that way. That's why I was thinking. It's the beginning. All right. The Lord is God. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the, of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? Have any people ever lived after hearing our God speak to them from afar as you have? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt? before your eyes? Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord he is God. There is none else beside him. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors, he chose you and by his great power he himself brought you out of Egypt. With his presence and with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Then Moses set aside three cities east of the river Jordan. For the rising of the sun, that the manslayer might flee there, who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having haste, hated him in the in time past, and that by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Namely, Bezil, Bezer, in the wilderness, in the plain country of the Reubenites, and Ramoth, in Gilead of the Gadites, and Go Golan, in Bishan, of the, uh, the Manassites. This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. It was after they had come out of Egypt and were in the valley east of the river Jordan, opposite the town of Beth Beth-Peor, that he gave them these laws. This was in the territory that had belonged to the king Sihon of the Amorites, who had ruled in the town of Heshbon. Moses and the people of Israel defeated him when they came out of Egypt, they occupied his land 
and the land of King Og, King Og of Bashan, the other Amorite king who lived east of the Jordan. Toward the rising of the sun, from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Sion, that is Hermon, and all the plain on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Alavah, below the slopes of Pisgah. All right, okay. So that's our uh, passage that we wrestle with tonight. Okay, so is there anything there on an initial surface reading? that jumped out at you or that you noticed something maybe for the first time? God seems to be expressing his election of them because of their fathers. Yes. And uh, I've been blessed by that thought many times for many countries of the earth who have had godly parentages and heritages and I personally think uh, he's he has people today that he is honoring and seeking and giving grace to because of their fathers, forefathers, that is. Yeah, and I, isn't that an amazing concept that the things that we do and our courage for the Lord and our obedience for the Lord and, uh, and the things that we do for the kingdom of heaven um, actually have an impact on, on our immediate families? And generations to come. And it's incredible, um, which should motivate us, I hope. But sometimes, obviously, uh, we, we can get quite distracted. But uh, encouraging each other that uh, the things that we're doing for the Lord right now, should he tarry, will we'll go on um, longer than, uh, than this present uh, generation. And it is also, in physics things that we do actually also continue. Like if I walk to this window now and wave, and then I come back and sit down, that light signal keeps going in space. And if I was clever enough to hop in a spaceship and fly faster than the speed of light, I could actually jump in front of that wave, turn around, and watch myself wave. Which means the things that we're doing now don't go away. Which is also a scary thought, <laughs> but it is also a good one because God looks and he says, um, those deeds of those patriarchs, you know, um, they, they still carry forward with me. And, it, and it, it's in the New Testament too. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I also read before that the sounds are stored somewhere in the walls, like sounds from past. Or really? In history, yeah, that like, they're contained in the walls. I did not know that, but mm -hmm. that's also quite a beautiful thought when you think about it. You know, the stones still speak and things like that. But, uh, interesting, interesting thought. Yep. All right. Anything else? Um, I had to. I had to look uh, when in verse thirty-seven. Um, when, when uh, God says he brought you out of Egypt by his presence, and I was like, oh, I wonder what that actually says in Hebrew. And I looked down and it's panim. And I'm going, what does it mean? Why would they translate presence from panim, faces? But of course, melacha panim. Malach panim. Yes, that's right. The angel of his presence. And so it actually is a legitimate translation that um, you know, God brought his presence out. Then I'd be thinking, wow, you know, that's kind of cool. Um, 
that there was some sort of presence of God on the planet. And that was a, why was I wrestling with that? Because today I had a phone call from an, Isra an is is Israeli Orthodox man who lives in the north. And we had a 52 minute conversation because he is attracted to Jesus. Oh. And uh, we had a, a big, like, most of our discussion was on, but how can God come down and be a man? And yet, despite the fact that he's wrestling with this, he says, but, but I love Jesus. I'm, I'm, I don't know why. I just think the Gospels are great. You know, when I read the New Testament, I just love it. It's fantastic. And, and uh, so we had all these nice discussion. At the end of our, and it was a bit of an argument too, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. Um, we, he said, can we pray? And I said, yes, brother. Do you want to go first? He said, yes, I'll pray. Guess who he prayed to? Yes. And yes, yeah, so and I was like, very interesting. You know, yeah. And so, um, so then when I came to this, to sit down and read this for, for today, I was like, oh, hang on a second. I've got to double check that. You know? um, but it's very interesting that there are passages in Hebrew, passages in the Hebrew Bible that are very, that have an interesting way of talking about God on the planet. Mm -hmm. I believe Paul, in fact, reaffirms this in the book of Romans. Which, of course, is passed down to us by Holy Spirit's inspiration and is living to the, for today, says they're beloved for the Father's sake. Yep. So this is still a source of hope for Israel. The election in their fathers has not been abandoned. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is going to bring the business full circle. Yep. Yeah. It's, yes. Yeah, and I've got a suspicion, well, because we live and work here for the last 21 years, we can see it's, it's occurring in front of our very eyes, and there are more and more of them. So that's a beautiful thought. Okay, ready to wrestle the text a bit more? All right, so starting again at uh, 32. So Moses says, ask, right? Start, uh, ask about the former days long before your time. From the day God created human beings on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? So in, in, in terms of uh, what he's about to set up, what are the first days? What are, the, what are we talking about here when he says, um, long before your time, when God made humans? We're talking about creation, creation of the world. Okay. What do you think the children of Israel understand about Genesis? They probably don't have the book as we know it today. So what do you think that they... They have oral traditions. Correct. Yep. Scripture probably got written down on parchment relatively late. The stories were told from one generation to the next. Yep. In uh, really a fixed and memorized form. Undoubtedly, some variations along the way. And the Holy Spirit edited the text as he as he pleased. And Correct. Actually, got written down. Yep. Yep. So they had they had stories. And they, they understood. And, and so he says, okay, so come on, think about those stories that you've heard of, uh, of how God made the world and how he first put human beings on the planet. Um, 
And uh, I mean, obviously, these guys are not trying any sort of scientific evolution models or anything like that. They're simply believing that God is a creator and God uh, fashioned human beings. Um, and then there's an interesting verse, uh, interesting sentence, where as part of just asking on this side of, of, of glory, he also asks heaven. Ask from one end of heaven to the other. What does that imply? It's a Jewish thought. Maybe something you might not have thought about before. Would you repeat that too? Okay. The um, ask from one end of heaven to the other. It's Sha'al, I think. Sha'al? Yep. Yep, I double checked it. And the word is for, for end is Matzah uh, uh, or something like that. Um, and in Jewish tradition, which is in some parts of Christianity, although not often thought about in the Protestant world, heaven has borders. Actually, has boundaries. And uh, so it's often in the Christian world, we think of heaven as sort of this thing that just stretches on forever, like there's no end, yet many sections, not the only time in the text, it, it says there are, are, there's borders, there's boundaries to it. He's probably, I, I believe God is speaking rather rhetorically here. I've been studying Job and he actually confronts Job in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's interesting, the chapter I was reading this morning, it was 38, um, or yesterday actually, he says, uh, do you know the ordinances of heaven? Yeah. <laughs> and have, have you placed them in the earth? Yeah. Uh, and this alongside numerous biblical texts says that heavens belong to God, but he's given to the earth to human beings. So mm. he's saying you can do your best, you're not even going to... You can look in the earth all you want. You're never going to uh, complete this search. I've, I've already done it. You know, I can yeah. rest assured, you know, we have the answer here. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the um, where was God before he made heaven? We don't know. Um, but there was no where. There was no where, yes. And then all of a sudden, there was a where. And, uh, and so it's one, not... It's this sort of metaphysics about heaven. Oh my gosh, what is it like? We don't know. However, it's a place. It's not something ethereal. I, I, I've thought and studied a lot about biblical cosmology. Genesis mm -hmm. on. I'm, I'm quite, of course, I have a background in physics, and I'm totally convinced that they fit. The whole thing fits, and that heaven is interlay interlayered with the space-time reality that we occupy, mm -hmm. and it'd be time air. We live in what the, both the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament call Earth, meaning the visible, thing. tangible thing, thing, even out a long, long ways. Yeah. You know, whatever we can see and, and yeah. touch as human beings, but it's interfaced with two more, at least two more layers of middle heaven and upper heaven. Yeah, at least. In, in the Greek texts and in the Hebrew Bible, it's beautifully stated as Hashemai, Ushmei Hashemai, meaning... The next layer is the, is the heaven uh, beyond us and intangible to us. But that layer itself has another layer over layer that to it is the same as uh, the middle heaven is yeah. to us. Yep. 
it's fascinating stuff the way this works. And yet, as uh, Arya says, where do humans? Ask, where do? Where's our place? Earth. Yep, the meek shall inherit the. Earth. Yes, and uh, you know. And the resolution of all this is that there is a reversal of all this topology. Yeah. Earth is exalted above heaven, above the highest heaven. God makes his, his final moment here. Yes, it's actually a beautiful picture when you think about it. You know. It's called this inversion of the, the involution of creation is called called a new birth. Mm. At the heart of it, there it, creation has a womb. Yeah, and he's yeah. And out of it is going to be born the new creation as this. Yep. Topology. Sort of, and, he and, and heavenly Jerusalem ascends here, and they somehow meld and mesh. And um, you, you can see God always wanted to do this when he when he made heaven. The first thing he did is he left it and came down to earth and started talking well, with humans. Heavenly Jerusalem is the bride. It's the, yes. It's the, the, yeah. it's the totality of, yeah. of God's oh. saints, and yeah. apparently all breathing creatures as well. Correct. It's a it's a yeah. whole. Yeah. And 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 so that yeah. It gets very interesting when you think about it. And here, there's just little hints that, uh, and, and it's, I always find that interesting where you go, ooh, that's a nice way to talk about from one end of heaven to the, to the other. Has, have you ever heard anything like it? And obviously it's rhetorical. No, no one's ever done this before. Um, has any other people ever heard the voice of God? Well, speaking out of fire, and he puts it in a, in, a, in a caveat, because he has said previously that he has used other nations to, to uh, wipe out some giants, and he has apportioned their lands. And how did he do that? I don't know. Obviously, he spoke to Noah, um, and, and he spoke to, to uh, Abraham, to, to a Chaldean, he spoke to Adam and Eve. You know, he's, he's talked to humans in other ways, but here, as like, but not like the way he's done with you guys, where he brought you as a people to a place, where he spoke to you as a nation. Uh, he's never done that before. Um, has any God, now that's an interesting f way to talk, particularly with what's coming up after this, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? You know, in all of the, the mythologies and uh, that are out there in uh, in ar around the world, not that they may have encountered ma many, but has uh, has any god ever done something like this? Testing signs, wonders, wandering through deserts, wars by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, or, or great and awesome deeds, uh, like the way the Lord your God, right? Adonai Lehecha, this this that phrase that occurs. Uh, several hundred times in the Bible, which would imply, what would that imply? When you hear things like, has any other God ever done this? Like your God? Which would imply that, there, the yes, that there's other gods, polytheism. The, the, and up until this point, the Bible has used language in a polytheistic way. Other gods aren't good like this. Your God's better than everybody else. And then, ooh, we get the next sentence. And the next sentence is the first verse that appears that declares monotheism. You were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God. And besides him, there is no other it's, uh, this is the first sentence where there is a very definite 
monotheistic output. But prior to this, you get things like, your God will be like this. I'm going to judge the other gods of Egypt. I'm going, and this sort of idea where if you didn't have the version, well, maybe there's some other gods and maybe we can worship them too and that's okay, especially if we go and visit their countries. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, obey the local God. But here, you go, uh, actually, no. You have a, a very solid um, thing. Now, notice how we come to the conclusion that, that there is only one God. You were shown these things as opposed to a Gnostic tradition. You'll just somehow through logic know that there's only one God. The, you were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is your God and there is no other. Right? So God has demonstrated his uniqueness and there's only one else up there by doing something amazing. So of course he wants it recorded. So of course he wants it remembered. This is his way of showing you that there's only one God. You don't sit down and philosophize and get this way. The Lord shows you that there is only one God. And besides him, there is no other. Right. So until this point, uh, there had been no uh, clear monotheistic statement. There have been illusions, but this is a clear monotheistic statement. Um, and guess what happens? It falls on deaf ears. He's just told them. You've just been wandering through the desert. You've been shown that there's only one God. And you would ex assume all the people would go, yes, there is only one God. We shall now go into Canaan and worship idols. Okay. It's, it's very interesting. Um, it fell on deaf ears and they end up um, engaging in polytheism. So um, what's that, what's that uh, phrase? There by the grace of God go you and I. And um, many times we have heard God speak through the word, speak through a brother or a sister, speak through a sermon, and yet for a brief moment in time it captures our hearts. And then it's gone. And maybe, maybe that is also perhaps one of the reasons why Paul does encourage us not to give up the habit of meeting together. That the, perhaps, uh, I don't know, but um, I, I, I think that one of the, a good way to keep and maintain and strengthen your faith is to, to stick with the brothers and sisters. And to stick at it. Because, you know, let's, let's, let's be really honest. The children of Israel had seen amazing things. And Moses has just given a clear, clear presentation that there's only one God. And yet, he's also turned around in the same chapter from last, two weeks ago, said, you're going to go into the, into the foreign land and worship their gods. And you go, well, how does that happen? We do it too. But here we have uh, that the, the Lord has shown us that there is only one God. And besides him, there is no other. And uh, he spoke from heaven. So from heaven, he made you hear his voice. And here is this interesting connection between heaven and earth. And it shows us how close they are. Because in one sentence, from heaven, he spoke. And then on earth, you also, that voice came through fire. So God is speaking from heaven. Yet, where do you hear the voice? On earth. 
very close. So from heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you, and on earth he showed you his great fire because you heard his words from out of the fire. Um, interestingly, that he uses that phrase that uh, you heard his voice, and 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 it was a form of discipline. Um, in fact, in the Exodus account, when the children of Israel do hear the voice, um, what is their reaction? Fear. Fear. Yeah, they're, they're kind of afraid. They, um, they, they say, "Look, we can't actually handle it." Um, it's interesting that um, there is a Jewish some some Jewish exegesis uh, want to say that there was a good fear. They were so ecstatic about hearing God's voice. They said, whoa, that's just so good. We can't handle it. We'll let Moses. That's kind of cute, but, but I'm not 100% sure that that was all implied by the text, okay? Uh, here, Moses is saying, well, it was, to, it was to discipline you, this idea of, you know, let me, let me tell you how big and powerful I am. You just listen to me speaking and you'll fall on the ground. When, uh, Jesus, when they come to arrest Jesus, what happens? Same thing. He says one word, here I am, and everyone falls down. Right? Yeah, very, when God wants to, to speak loudly and clearly, it can knock you off your feet. Uh, and then there's that, uh, in verse 37, that phrase, uh, which Paul reflects, because he loved your ancestors. God uh, loved and cared for the Avot. And he chose their descendants after them. So he loved the patriarchs. He loved what they did. And, and those patriarchs, they had serious character flaws too. I mean, you, a wonderful case study of, of going through uh, a group of people with very dysfunctional families. Like, name one patriarch who's got a real good family line. <laughs> They're just like us, okay? They've got all kinds of issues, uh, families all against families, and yet their courage, uh, uh, their humility, their, their chastisement, their repentance, all of that um, uh, somehow touches the heart of God, and he says, oh, this family's doing great. And they had one thing in common as well. Each of them taught their children well, to fear the Lord. In fact, God says, that's why I chose you, Abraham because I know you're going to train your son after you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, uh, yes. And then when God talks to it, Isaac, he reflects that and says, your, your father's done well. You know, um, and I'm going to make some promises. The things I swore to Isaac, uh, Abraham, I will now swear to you. And God has continued that uh, thought because he continues to uh, embrace Israel. And I guess when you look at modern Israel and you look at what they do or don't do, um, uh, and it does disappoint some Christians when they come here. They come here expecting to find that Israel is a little bit more holy. Um, I know that uh, many of my in-laws who have come and visited sort of say, kind of expected to see more Jews worshipping the Lord. So, yeah, well. Um, however... You know, God didn't bring Israel back as they deserved it yeah, for, the, for the sake of the patriarchs. And then he brought them out of Egypt by his presence. This sort of idea that uh, there's some sort of physical presence of God on the earth. How does he do it? I don't know. He just does. Uh, it's a mystery. And we don't always see how he does things. We only see through a glass darkly. Um, it's just about nearly nigh impossible to explain 
how God works uh, in, on, on the earth. But he does. And um, here he, it's, it's listed as his presence. That um, part of the exodus from Egypt um, was with God. So who came out of Egypt? Israel and and God came out of Egypt. Right? Where was God? He was in Egypt. He, he says to, to Moses, Bola Paro, come to Pharaoh. Not go to Pharaoh, come to Pharaoh. So where's God? He's with Pharaoh. You know, this sort of idea that um, God comes out of Egypt with his people. He's leading them, he's guiding them, he's always been there, uh, which is also a very beautiful thought. Right? Often people say, you know, in calamity, where's the Lord? You know, did he run away to heaven and is he just watching from far away? No, he's right there roughing it with the people. So, so in, in verse uh, 38, um, we have to have the presence of the Lord and his great strength, you know, his kolach godol, his great power. Why? Because he's going to drive out nations greater and stronger than Israel. And, of course, the children of Israel are slaves. They're not soldiers. They don't have um, a massive army. They don't have uh, access to modern weapons uh, or battle tactics. Instead, they get out of Egypt. And who's the first guy they got to go fight? Amalek. Uh, who, who, uh, and they need God to fight for them. So you get the whole encounter with Moses standing with his hands up. Um, and he has to help uh, drive out the giants that are in front of him. And they're big. They're tough. Um, and so uh, he is strong. And he's going to bring them into the land and give it to them as an inheritance, uh, as it is today. Right? So this, uh, this idea that um, the land is an inheritance for Israel, as well as Israel is an inheritance for the people. And what's an inheritance? How do you get an inheritance? Because you're family. Yep. Because you happen to have the same last name as the guy that just died. And uh, it's not because uh, you're good, you've got a good scorecard, you have a good degree, you get your inheritance because you're family. And uh, that's a nice way for God to describe the land to the, to the people of Israel and to describe Israel to himself. So in, in other uh, parts of the prophets, like in Isaiah, Isaiah 19, God will describe Egypt as my people you know, um, uh, Syria is my, my handiwork, but Israel is my inheritance. Right? He's sort of, so he'll even describe what we might consider enemies of Israel as his people, but, or the enemies of, uh, of the Assyrians, as you know, but God's fashioning them in his way as well. But when it comes to Israel, he says, well, actually, this one's my inheritance, which is a very nice way of talking. All right. Um, all right. So the land is an inheritance, not a conquest. Even though it will involve conquest, right? But you don't get to claim the land because you invaded it. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Right. You know, the, 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 the modern world will say, you know, we don't like uh, Israel because you invaded the land and you got it by conquest. 
Well, okay, it is still called the conquest of Canaan, that's true. But the title deed to the land isn't because of a conquest. Other nations do that. Title deed is because of inheritance. That's a big, big difference. All right. Um, verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. Another clear uh, monotheistic thing. So in, remember, Deuteronomy is a commentary to the Torah. Right? It does, it, there are, there, God, Moses has already given the Torah. He's already said some stuff. Uh, he's already given Leviticus. He's already done Numbers. He's already done Shemot. And here, he's his last day, and he's standing before the people. He's going to go off and die, and they're going to go into, the, into Israel. This is his time to make a comment. And he starts to say things that he hasn't said before. And why does he do so? Well, obviously, he does so by, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he does so because he's also witnessed a group of people not keep the Torah in the way that they should have, particularly applying it to their heart. So he deliberately starts saying these things, and he brings in this idea that uh, God is, is monotheistic, and God is in control of two places, and these places are oddly enough very close together. God is in control of heaven, and he's in control of earth. Right? Um, so because God is in total control, right? Oh, and you have to take this to heart. I, I nearly missed that. Acknowledge this, that this is true, and put it where? In your heart, right? Not in your head. Um, uh, uh, you might have to obey, yes, but it should start from your heart. Okay? Which is these, this kind of language does not appear in Numbers. does not appear in Exodus, okay? When he's giving the commandments. He says, these are the commandments of God, and blah, 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 blah. But here... He, Moses is saying, now, now put, this, put this inside your heart because we tried the other way before and it didn't work. Um, keep his decrees and his commands, which I'm giving you today. Uh, verse, verse 40. Um, so if there really is a God, which you have to acknowledge and take to your heart, that there really is only one God and this God is the God of heaven and is also the God of the earth, he doesn't just live in heaven remote. He's also part of this world too. What should be our natural response? Worship. That's the usual Christian way of talking. Yeah. Okay, there's a God. Let's write some songs, particularly ones that say the same thing again and again and again. <laughs> Reverence, okay. We'll reverence the Lord and in... Um, do his will. Do his will, yeah. And, uh, and so Moses already said this. He says, you know, keep the commandments and in this way you'll learn to revere the Lord. So there's this process idea that uh, obviously when we all came to faith, did we know about God? How much did we know about God when we came to faith? No, no, no yeah, not a lot. Um, but some of us, we knew a little bit more than, 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 than others. Um, but, uh, you know, you come to faith, you believe that there's a, a God, there's a, that, that process is different for absolutely everybody, and then afterwards you don't just stop. Actually, then it usually kicks into high gear. You really, really, really want to go and learn. Um, and you can see the passion of, the, of new believers. Some, it's, it's, 
quite awe-inspiring sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go, wow, you're really, really reading your Bible. This, this verse in uh, portraying these instructions out of Moses' mouth is actually reinforcing the fact that God is not giving you this as a list to hang on the wall. And he goes away, yeah. and he's going to come back later to see how it works. Yes, give you a scorecard. <laughs> Which is what we intuitively think of in terms of keeping the rules. Right. And, and as we know in the New Testament, keeping rules doesn't work. Nope. It, it is saying he's given you the instructions, and he's right here, both watching, and he's here to help. He's here to help, yes. He didn't yes. go away into heaven. He's still on the earth. Yep. Accompanying these words that have come out of his mouth. Yep. I mean, he could have simply yes. He could have said something like, um, you know, "Just turn around and see the see the see the presence of God in the in the tent. He's right here, right?" But but he, but Moses doesn't want to direct actually too much to that to that. Where does he want to put God? In the heart. He could have said, "God's right there. He's watching. Be good." Or you'll get it, right? You know, he could have done the things like, um, if you don't do God's will, you remember Nadav and Avihu? You know, they went and did the wrong thing, and fire came out, and they're all toast. You know, we've been carrying around their ashes ever since. This is a memorial. Yeah, how are the rest of your sons doing, Aaron? Oh, they're obeying the Lord. Fantastic. Um, but but he doesn't do that. He, he's 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 putting God even closer, right? Um, and and why is Moses doing this? Maybe because he's actually also foreseen the fact that they're going to be taken away from, from the temple. So he needs to make sure that they don't think that God just lives in a temple. Right? Uh, because that, unfortunately, you know, people began to think, you know, the temple's in Jerusalem, God will never destroy Jerusalem. How would he desecrate his name that way? You know, we can do whatever we want now because we've got this great edifice. And, then, um, and, and that completely missed the point. And yet God is definitely king of both heaven and earth, and he is incredibly close. Uh, just like he says when he gets his people out of Egypt, build me a tabernacle because I want to dwell with you. Yes, we could live in the tabernacle, but you could, you could make the argument that, uh, that he's also wanting to dwell with you, although it's not as clearly stated, perhaps. But here, Moses is definitely... Um, making sure that they know that God lives and resides in their hearts. So now that we've made God king of our heart, uh, as well as both of heaven and earth, we should obey. But those obeying the rules isn't the thing that gets you into heaven. Right? The response of God being a king should be, all right, better do what the king says then. What, what does the king say? Well, he doesn't like lying. He doesn't like murder. So, oh, those seem to be pretty good things. That seems to be the, the heart and the intention of God. I probably should, shouldn't give that a go. And, uh, and so the, the, the thing here is um, to keep his decrees and his commands, um, uh, which I think in Hebrew, what does it say? Is it chokim uh, mitzvotav? Is that what it says? Yes. Yes, okay. And... Um, they, 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 they use different words um, and many different exegetes, uh, particularly in, in the Jewish world, come along and go, no, why, why don't they all just say the same thing? Uh, what are the differences? Because um, uh, later on in verse 45, he's going to say the same thing. You know, these are the chokim and the uh, uh, um, mishpatim. 
Is it? Yeah, Mishpatim, the judgments. Well, all, all the same. There, you, we can read Psalm 119, and there are dozens of oh, words. Oh, my gosh. All, yeah. They're all saying the same. Yeah. So it's easy. Yeah. However, the, the, I, had, I did hear a, uh, a discussion on some of these different words. And the one that I liked the most was um, the chokim. What are the chokim? The chokim are the, are the commands. We have absolutely no understanding. There seems to be no logic to it. Mishpatim, judgments, well, they, they're obvious because they have moral relevance. Don't murder. Why not? Because it's really not nice. The guy doesn't like being murdered, you know? But what possible meaning can you subscribe to shutners? The let's not... Uh, make sure we blend linen and wool together, you know, and you go, uh, okay, um, just because. And so they have this, they have this uh, one part of exegesis that says, you know, God gives a, gives a command, you don't quite understand, that's okay. Or again, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. I don't see everything. I don't understand everything. But that's okay. And... Uh, and considering who he's talking to, you know, this is this, this community in Corinth, which are having orgies, and yet, you know, Paul says, you know, you're a saint. <laughs> you scratch your head and you go, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so somehow he had uh, been able to, to see beyond just, just the, that side of, uh, of life. So here, you keep the chokim and the uh, mitzvot, the, the decrees, the statutes, and the commandments, that, uh, which I am giving you today, which is very interesting that he would say it that way, so that it may go well with you and your children after you. It has generational impact, okay, which we've seen from the patriarchs. Here is making it very personal, putting it all you know, to every single family member. That you may, and it gives a promise, that you may live long in the land. Right? And there's, a, there's been a few times where actually uh, Moses will say, if you keep these commandments, you'll live long, including the, the, the honoring that your mother and father, that, it may, that you may live long. Here, may live long in the land your God gives you for all time. Is that what it says in Hebrew? Is it... Uh, uh, the <laughs> all, yep, all the days. All the days, literally, but it means time forever. Yep. So this is a this is a a, a, a title deed that does not expire. Right. Um, I know too many exegetes uh, come along and will then tie these things to say. Uh, um, once we've disobeyed and we've had the temple destroyed, that's it. Okay, the land, that promise of the land is now null and void. And um, which has been a teaching of the church for some time. I would say a wrong one. Um, uh, here, it, uh, uh, it says that um, the Lord is giving you this land for all time. All right? In your testament terms, the challenge is defining Israel. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and, and I think the, uh, the, the, what's, um, you have this, this thing called uh, replacement theology. Yes, everyone's heard of it? Yes, and of course we all believe in replacement theology, that some people's theology needs to be replaced. Okay, this, um, the guy from uh, England, uh, Alex Jacob, 
wrote a book, and he just he was trying to figure out how what if there's not replacement theology, what do you call the other thing? What? And he and he called it enlargement theology. <laughs> yeah. I th I really liked it. I said, "Well done." He goes, "Yeah, I really wrestled with it." He said, "God enlarged His people." We, we have yeah. natural Israel today on one track. Correct. Coming into the land, we have spiritual Israel around the world on another track. Yep. And it's also coming into the land. It's a very interesting amalgamation of these two. Uh, yep. Two tribes, as it were. Yes, God, yes, the two, yeah, God has enlarged his, uh, his theology, which is a very... And we sit around this table in some ways as a first fruit of it. Yeah, 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 that's right, because uh, some of us have uh, joined the House of Israel physically as well as spiritually and have resided in the land and... Um, yeah, we're all here at the moment. Everybody comes and goes. Yeah, yeah. It's a national sport until recent weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we ain't going anywhere, people. This is lockdown time. Okay. We're just going to sit around and study Bible all day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Micah just, just got in into the, into the army before they shut it. And they said, well, don't we, we can't take recruits because we're a little bit nervous of, uh, of uh, calling up large numbers of people and to get them infected. I was like, well, you know, and like, like last week, we, we did the Purim play. Yeah. We couldn't do it this week. No, there was, it was like our last hurrah. Yeah. I mean, our last big dinner Friday night. Yes, I know. We had this great Shabbat. Oh, and speaking of that, you know what? Do you know what happened to my car on, on Shabbat, Mozart Shabbat? It rested. It died. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Like, I took this German volunteer, a German girl, to the airport, and, a, and my car died on the way home. And I was like, okay, but, but the Lord kept it alive long enough to get the girl there, did it, and now, now my car died, but at the same time, I don't really need it to go anywhere because I'm not allowed. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> and like, well, okay, Lord, thank you very much. Okay, it's just, yeah. okay, um, of, yeah, so I'm a little, he has a sense of humor. He has a great sense of humor, like, yeah, so the, the car has served, served its wonderful purpose and has now promptly up and given me the ghost. So. But we, we had the opportunity to bless a lot of people with it. We drove them all around and helped to move people houses, left, right, and center, and got Lila to the, or a few people to the last Shabbat at Aries before the, the big, before we couldn't. That's um, the way it is. Yeah. God is good. So here we uh, live in the land for a long time, and also that it goes well with us and our children. So there's this sort of linkage in our genealogies. And then you get this um, little, little break in uh, the way we're talking to set aside some cities of refuge. Now, they're going to do this in the land in, um, when they get into the land of Israel, but Moses can't do that because he won't be there. Right. Right? Um, but here, he does get to do a bit. Um, and he sets aside three cities on the east side of the Jordan so that uh, uh, the cities of refuge in Hebrew is a miklat, which is the modern-day word for bomb shelter, <laughs> yeah, which I always think is very interesting. You know, uh, yeah, last time we had uh, some air raid warnings and sirens, these orthodox boys ran onto the compound and said, can we hide in your miklat? You know, can we hide in your city of refuge? Yes, come here, you know, oh, killer of un unintentional people. You know? <laughs> But, uh, yep. 
So this is for a person if you've killed someone unintentionally, and um, uh, because if if someone did kill somebody, what was the legal response of the family member? Kill them back. Okay, you got the whole Goel, the kinsman redeemer, the sort of avenger of blood idea. Um, very strong in the Middle East. You know, you did my family wrong. I'm coming to kill you. Um, here, uh, obviously, there were times when the accidents did happen. It was not intentional, um, and so God had set up this, these, these places, and they were run by who? Who was running these cities? Priests. Yes. Yeah. These are priestly cities. Um, not 100% sure, like there's, not, there's no description of what goes on inside them or what people do when they're there, um, but a city is a functioning city and, and from archaeology, what, what, what we've found of priestly cities is they had crops and farms, they had businesses and, and they were all doing what looked like a normal city, but it was, it was ruled by Kohanim and Levi. And then it gives the names and it get, you get one for each tribe, each tribe gets one. Um, uh, so what do we learn where here, where Moses, the law was, you know, we just set aside some, some refugee cities in the West Bank as well as the East Bank. Moses only gets to do the East Bank. Is there anything we can learn from that? I mean, it's still the Holy Land. Right? The east side of the Jordan is the Holy Land. We always keep saying we're going to go in and possess that side. We always talk about the west side. But there are still two and a half tribes sitting on this side, which, which you know, they might have been an afterthought per se, or where they looks like they're nice uh, land for cattle. I happen to have lots of cattle. Maybe we should, you know, two plus two is now four, and by, we get some. But they are given to the children of Israel. So... Uh, if you only can complete half the command, you can only do half the, the, the story, what does that teach us? Okay, God gives you a, 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 a mission. You know, we're going to go and save China. So you start. Do you get to see all of China saved? Usually you go and you start building a church and then all of your life you manage to perhaps plant a few churches. But then people come after you and they keep going and then people come after them. And so it's, it's quite humbling actually that uh, he, Moses got to do a bit of the allocation but I actually can't do all of it. Somebody else is going to have to do the rest of this. You know, the early missionaries, most of them were Catholics, that's... that's to bow hats off to the Catholics, they went to deepest, darkest Africa and got eaten. And so then the Catholic Church sent some more and they got eaten. And then there were some more and they just kept coming. And uh, so not all of us get to do everything. Um, I do remember working in a Christian bookshop in Australia where an interesting brother walked in and said, I have just come back from China where I've declared China for Jesus. And I remember sitting there going, oh, lovely. I'm so glad you did that. 
you know, because <laughs> obviously China was didn't belong to Jesus until you came along. And, but you've done it, you know, <laughs> you moron, <laughs> you know. Um, we have we 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 are part of this great picture. It's a little bit, and that's okay. Our little bit is a good little bit, and we get to just do it. And uh, God, He puts all the little bits together. Exactly. One sows one, and we always want to be the guy who does, you know, the reaping. You know, so we can get to say, "Oh, I baptized all these people," but you know, it's okay if you're doing the little drop. If you're just you were that that person who encouraged the guy just enough to keep going, and he needed it, and uh, and and so we all have this, you know, wonderful little role to play. So here. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So here we have this little break, and we get the little cities of refuge, and uh, and Moses sets up um, these these places um, for the priests. So we can assume that uh, some Cohens and some Levites are also living on this side of the Jordan, which is nowhere near the temple. Okay, but uh, they're doing their job um, and and setting themselves up to be able to host uh, and, and 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 give people safety. How they figured out whether a, a murder or a, a death was intentional or not, I, I have no clue. Um, but we assume that they did. It says here that you didn't hate him yesterday. It's not premeditated. Yep. Those kinds of relationships that tend to be known in the community before yeah. the fact. Before the fact, yeah. Especially if someone's murdered. Yes, I mean, what's that common thing, you know, um, if... Uh, if a spouse dies, who do you usually suspect? <laughs> yes, <laughs> because statistics just happen to go along with. Well, usually the person living with the guilt. Yeah, it's like so. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there, there is there is some obvious uh, ways of you know, working this out. So then, um, uh, verse. What are we up to? Forty-four. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Uh, maybe you can um, work, help me out on this one. This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. Okay. Um, the law of Moses, because that's what it gets called, even in the New Testament, is also the law. The one he broke all at once. Well, yes, that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, I didn't like the first one. I like, oh, it's exactly the same. Okay. <laughs> well, what do you know? Good one. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep this second set. Um, the, uh, he sets before the children of Israel, but um, who's it actually from? It's from God, because even in the Psalms, what does King David say? How I love your law, as opposed to how I love the law of Moses. Okay, but we do—they do get synonymous sometimes. Okay, and uh, the psalmist is having a face-to-face -face conversation. Though. Yes. Every one of those words has is modified by the second person possessive. It's your rules, your mm -hmm. laws, your words. Your Holy Spirit. He's yeah. having a conversation face-to-face -face with God. He's not reading a list uh, out of a book somewhere. Yep, but it is the, it's the law of Moses and it's the law of God at the same time. So depending on who you're talking to. That's well, Torah. I mean, yeah. We forget because we know it is law so well. It's yes, Torah. It's Correct. It's the instructions of God. Wow! Only when they codified it and turned it into 
paper and ink, and that was uh, yeah. all they wanted. Yeah, or, yep, or shoved them on our, on our walls, which is still good to do too. So these are the stipulations, the chokim and the decrees and the mishpah team, uh, which that Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt. So yes, it is Moses who gives it to them, the actual mediator, but who's the original source? God. God. I mean, you know, God says, well, in Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and in Numbers, the phrase you constantly get is, the Lord said to Moses, now speak to the children of Israel and say this. So the children of Israel only hear Moses, but the, the source behind it is God. And here, you're, you're referring to these are the things that uh, Moses gives them. Okay? Well, but that was because the children of Israel didn't want to hear. Didn't want to hear. Yeah, yeah. It was too ecstatic. That's right. It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, let's. If we actually read closely Exodus. There was a brief moment when all the people of Israel were invited to go up the mountain. That's true. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Yep. And yeah. after that moment passed, only Moses went up. Yep. Moses had a face-to-face -face conversation, and everybody else got it written. Uh, got it written down. Yeah, yeah, and then and then that later Second Temple period thing. Um, now remember, in the Second Temple period, you know, that's all the all the funky stuffs going on. Um, they they a, set, a an exegetical tradition started that was like, wow, you know, God is so powerful, and you know, His presence is just so overwhelming that if anybody physically actually gets into His presence, you'll just disappear in a puff of smoke. Okay, and uh, and so obviously, you know, how does God come down and interact with Moses? They 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 start to throw more intermediaries in there, and so the Torah suddenly gets being mediated by, as Paul says it. Angels. So um, the, the tradition comes up, even though we have the text that tells us, no, God and Moses did this face to face. There is a second temple period tradition, which also has a little nuance into the into the New Testament, that it was mediated by by uh, angelic presence. Okay, yeah, that's where that that's where that sort of idea comes from. Um, um, uh, but in the Torah itself. Moses and God talking, and then Moses talks to the people. So hence, they begin to know it as the law of Moses, because they've physically got a guy talking to them, although he's veiled. Um, uh, however, its original source is, of course, God. Right? And that's the reason why I think uh, you know, David says, oh, how I love your law. You know, he's talking to God face to face and having a conversation with him. If the Torah comes from heaven, it must be, by definition, good. As Paul says, the law is holy, just, and good. In fact, you can't keep it. It's got nothing to do with the fact that the laws themselves aren't good. If it comes from heaven, it must be good. All right. So, uh, so these are the, these are the things that Moses says when he gave them when they came out of Egypt. Right? Um, you don't get these laws in Egypt. Now, note that God saves people before he gives them the Torah. Right? They don't know much about God. They don't get given the law in Egypt, and then they go, quick, if we obey these, we'll get, God will rescue us. No, we're already rescued. We're already saved. 
Then God gets his people out. He's already wiped out. Israel has drowned, beaten all their gods, drowned Pharaoh and his army, and then says, this is who I am, and this is what I like and what I don't like. Anyone want me to be king? All of you? Fantastic. And away we go. And you see that same theology in the New Testament. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It, it, and uh, it's not that I read the New Testament and then Jesus hung on a cross. He had already done it before I even knew his name. And, uh, and that same thing happens here. Okay, We are given the Torah after we come out of Egypt. The Torah doesn't save us. And that's also one of the reasons why Paul and Peter, when they're having an argument in Galatians, Paul can say, now we know, we Jews, we know the Torah doesn't save us. We're not idiots because we're already saved. Okay, The Torah is the instructions and teaching of God, which must be by definition good. But the actual salvation bit, no, that comes from heaven. And we were in the valley, and then it gives you a little uh, uh, location. We were in the valley near Beit Peor, on the east side of the Jordan, in the land of Sichon, king of the Amorim, who reigned in Heshbon and was defeated by Moses and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. So you get why he has to continue to tell everybody we managed to smash off these kings. Um, this is now, I think, the fourth or fifth time that we have this, this idea that there were these large giants, they were not nice people, uh, and we definitely killed them. <laughs> um, he's had to, he's reiterated this quite some time. And it also, it says, and they took possession of his lands and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, which in um, uh, uh, Jewish exegetical tradition are descendants of, of the Nephilim. Right? Uh, why do we find them living near Hermon? Um, in, again, because in, according to uh, the book of Enoch and, and, and other Second Temple period literature, Hermon is one of the connecting points between heaven and earth. That sort of, that sort of veil is a bit weaker there, and that's where the uh, angels descend to initiate their rebellion. And names a few of them, and some of their descendants become... Uh, giants and after the flood they congregate around that mountain and they don't leave it so you find Sichon you find Og you find all the giants living in this area and so why do they live in this area okay because uh, this is where their parents had descended and they didn't stay away and then God uses a whole bunch of nations including Israel but not only Israel to wipe them out he uses, and he has discussed this in, in the preceding chapters of Deuteronomy, where he went through a nice little historical list saying, I use these nations to kill this person and these nations to kill that one, and I've wiped out those nasty giants. Now you're going to go into the land and you're going to wipe out the rest of them. That might take a while, right? We're still, we're still doing it at the time of King David, but, but um, we will eventually get them all done. And here uh, uh, we... we acknowledge that we've defeated these guys and we've taken their stuff. Um, and, and it gives you the, uh, the borders of this territory. Um, and uh, it even gives you an interesting name. Uh, Mount, is that Mount Sirion, as in Shirion, Arma? No, uh, or, or is it a Samech? There is some no. It's a scene. It's a scene. Okay. It's a scene. Okay. Uh, which is one of the I names for. I don't think it's related to armor. No. But it's a, a another name for a Hermon. Yep. Another another name for the Hermon, and uh, uh, as as far as the Dead Sea. So, the 
a portion of Jordan, okay, it's a, it's, is, is, um, yeah, is listed as, a, as belonging, as a, an inheritance, which we never talk about much because we only seem to talk about the west side because that's the bit they're going to win and conquer, even though they've already conquered this bit. But the conquest isn't the title deed. The title deed is inheritance, which is a very big deal, big difference. You don't conquer something and then keep it. You conquer it because it needs to be conquered. The actual land itself is an inheritance. There's a big deal, big difference. All right. So that brings us to the end of chapter four, finally. And the next, remember, Deuteronomy is a comment on the Torah. So we've already had the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and now we're going to re-say the commandments again, now with some differences. Why? So we're making a comment. We're going to, they're not going to be the same. Um, the things that he leaves out and the things that he adds are, are part of the, the um, treasure of Deuteronomy. And this becomes the most important book in the Second Temple period. Right, the, this one Deuteronomy is quoted over three hundred times in the New Testament, uh, and also in um, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and in large sections of rabbinic literature. It becomes the go-to book. Why? It's about the heart, mm. right? Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, it's a. Other there are worse streams of Judaism which favoured other texts. Yes. But uh, Deuteronomy is a great, great book because as we're making comment on the Bible, then Moses says, but where are these laws really meant to be written? <clears throat> on your heart. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.